0: Welcome to the Sermon Podcast for Canton Church. We gather every week in Canton, Georgia to worship and grow together through God's Word. We exist because generations matter. We hope you are encouraged by today's message. Everybody doing all right today? Okay, that was terrible. That was almost like time change Sunday. Everybody doing all right today? All right, good stuff. It's a great Sunday. Listen, there's this big yellow thing in the sky. I don't know if you saw this, but it's the first time in like weeks sunshine. We didn't lose an hour of sleep last night. Birds were chirping when I woke up this morning. Like, it's a good day. I almost broke out into a musical or something at my house when I woke up, but man, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, We really are thankful that you chose to be here, and here's what I know. I know that you could choose to do a lot of things any given Sunday, and the fact that you got up today and came to be here with us, um, I love it because we believe that when you come to church, good things happen. Good things happen because you're here, and good things happen because God is here, and so we're thankful for that. You know, we just heard just a second ago that we've been in this Axe and Arrows series um, looking at some of the weirdest stories in the Bible, and so we're going to continue that today. But if you've been here for any length of time, you know that Corey and I have four kids. Uh, Cooper's 13, Branson is 11, Tucker is 8, and Kinley is 6. And I love almost everything that my kids do, all right? Almost everything. But if I could just vent for a minute, just if you would allow me like a counseling session, there's one thing that my kids do that drives me insane. Can I tell you? Is it okay if I tell you? Everybody okay with that? Um, Cooper, shut your ears. So here's the deal. When my kids, so here we have a rule in our house. We feed our kids food, right? At least three meals a day. It's just kind of a rule. We just believe in feeding them regularly. And so we feed them food, right? Because that's, we're good parents. But let's just hypothetically say that we eat dinner at 6.30 every night, give or take. And let's just assume that one random day, it's 7 o'clock or so and we haven't eaten dinner yet. One or all of my kids may make a statement like this, Dad, I'm starving. No, you're not actually starving. There are children around the world who are starving because they haven't eaten for days. You had a little Debbie cake 20 minutes ago, but we're a little late for dinner. You're not starving. Hush, right? My kids say, Dad, I'm starving. Because here's what they have imagined in their youth minds, right? If dinner's a little late or lunch is a little later than they envisioned, if their stomach makes a little bit of a twinge, like, I'm starving, right? Because in their minds, if there's no food, it's famine. Well, today we're going to talk about this idea of famine Or feast as we continue in this series. Two weeks ago, we're we're really kind of living in 2 Kings chapter 6 and 7. And two weeks ago, I started this series looking at a really unique story. And we set it up looking at all these crazy stories from 2 Kings chapter 6. The prophet Elijah then in the first part of this passage, or in the first part of this book. And then the prophet Elisha, who was kind of his apprentice, his understudy. And so he comes along and he receives this double portion of God's blessing and anointing on his life. And so then what happens is that the, the, the company of prophets are going to cut down uh, wood to try to build a new place for them to meet. And an axe head that was borrowed flies off and lands in the water. And so this guy says to Elisha, it was borrowed. I, I lost it. It was borrowed. I got to get it back. And so Elisha does what any of us would have done. He cuts a stick, throws it in the water, and the axe head floats. Well, If you know anything about science, that's not the way it would work, so we recognize this is a supernatural story of God. But here's what we talked about that week. We talked about the idea that God can restore back to you whatever you have lost. And we believe that. And Axe and Arrows is not really even about weird stories. It's about, do I have enough faith to believe that God can do the supernatural, that God can restore back to me what was lost? Last week, Pastor Trevor continued this series, and he continued in 2 Kings 6, and he talked about this story where Elisha and his servant were in the tent, and when they came, the servant came out, he looked up at the hills, and the enemies were surrounding them. But Elisha just didn't get worried, and he said to the servant, he was like, no, 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 those who are with us, are more than those who are against us, which was just an incredibly powerful statement. He made another statement where he said that in the end of the book, God wins. And so if in your life right now it doesn't seem like God is winning, it means it's not the end yet, which I love. Just so powerful. And so for all of us, we take these two stories and we recognize like there's some supernatural things that are happening. They were blinded. They were led into the enemy camp. And then the people of God were like, do we kill them? And Elisha's like, no, don't kill them. Feed them and send them back. And so that's really where we pick up the story today. In 2 Kings chapter 6, we're going to finish uh, a portion of this chapter, and then we're going to jump into 2 Kings chapter 7. So if you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to flip there with me or open up an app. Most of these scriptures will be up on the screen today. But we want to just continue in this looking at the story of Elisha and and what's happening there historically and culturally in that context, in that time. And as we start reading, you're going to go, man, this is a weird story. Well, I told you before this series, these were going to be some of the weirdest stories you've ever read. And if you're hungry already, if you're starving like my kids are all the time, you may get a little squeamish here for the next few verses. Okay, 2 Kings chapter 6. Beginning in verse 24. I'm reading from the NIV. I tell you that because in a minute I'm going to go to a different translation to give a little clearer picture. This is what it says. Sometimes, sometime later, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, mobilized his entire army and marched up and laid siege to Samaria. There was a great famine in the city, and the siege lasted so long that a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver and a quarter of a cab of seed pods for five shekels. Now, that's two verses of Scripture. I want to read just the second verse of Scripture in the New Living Translation, which is a different version of Scripture, just to give you a little clearer picture. Use some words that you would understand a little better than what we just read. This is verse 25 in the New Living. As a result, there was a great famine in the city. The siege lasted so long that a donkey's head sold for 80 pieces of silver and a cup of dove's dung sold for five pieces of silver. I told you we were going to get a little squeamish. It gets worse, okay? So here's the deal. Just so you know, there's a famine in the land, all right? And as a part of this famine, they're trying to figure out, what do we eat? And so they looked around, and they decided, we don't have a lot of food. We don't have a lot of grain. We don't have barley. We don't have the things that we would normally eat, and so let's look around. And what they could find was that they still had a few donkeys, Now, we'll talk about it in a second, but donkeys were something that they did not eat. This was not a part of their normal diet. Donkeys were actually a part of the list of unclean, ceremonially unclean animals that they weren't supposed to eat as Jewish people. But they looked around and they said, hey, donkeys are available. If we kill donkeys and cut off their heads, we could eat that because we're starving. And so they said, here's what we'll do. That's such a a high commodity in this current climate that we'll pay 80 pieces of silver for a donkey head that we can eat on for a little while. And it got so bad that those who couldn't afford donkey heads, they didn't have 80 pieces of silver. They said, yeah, but we've got all these doves. And we could eat the dove dung, and I don't have 80 pieces of silver, but I got five pieces of silver. And so they started selling off the waste of the doves. And here's the deal. I know when you read that, you're like, that is nasty. I know it is. This is a weird story, but here's what I want you to see right here. That they were in a famine, so they became desperate. They were willing to do anything that they had to do in that moment that they never would have envisioned doing before that moment. When you get to a place where you're desperate, you come to a moment of crisis where you have to decide, will I compromise who I am or will I hold to the values that I said I would before the famine took hold? Because you're going to find yourself in a moment where there's famine or there's things aren't as good or life's not as great or the circumstances aren't as great. And you come to that place where you have to decide, man, it's, it's a famine or whatever you want to call it for that season of your life, that day, that week, that month, that year, whatever. I'm in this moment, and, and it doesn't seem like I have a lot of choices. And so because I don't have a lot of choices, I've got to decide, do I still hold to the values that I had when things were good Or do I compromise my values because it seems like that's the only option? Because let me just promise you that that's never the right option. Compromising your values that you decided, right? Never question in the dark what you decided in the light. Compromising your values in that moment is never, never, never a good idea. And so you had donkeys, right? They were the unclean animal, which means that Jewish people could not eat the donkey. And then they had the donkey head, which was the most inedible, unclean part of the unclean animal. So just for a matter of calling it something, we'll just call that forbidden. They're now eating something that was forbidden. That seemed to be a trend in the Old Testament. It started all the way back in the first human being story, right? They ate something that was forbidden, Out of temptation, they decided that what they wanted was better for them than what God wanted for them. So they ate something that was forbidden. But doves were not forbidden. Doves were actually a part... Of the approved list of sacrifices that they could bring to the temple, they could bring to the tabernacle so that they could say, Hey, I come to the priest. I've done something. It's not a donkey that's unclean. I'm unclean. And so as a part of me becoming clean, according to the Old Testament law, I offer this dove or maybe two doves as sacrifice. So the dove would not have been unclean, but for sure the dove's dung was unclean. And so in this moment, what they did is it wasn't that it was forbidden like the donkey head, but they were twisting the truth just a little bit. Something that was okay, they took the only part of what was okay that actually wasn't okay, and they took that. So you've got a forbidden thing, the donkey head, and a manipulation of the truth of something that could be pure but isn't pure because they're not doing it the way that God ascribed for them to do it. And so now there's this manipulated truth But in famine, they didn't have food, and so they started eating things that they weren't supposed to. And here's a reality I hope we all walk away from today with in our hearts. When you are convinced you don't have what you need, you start wanting things you shouldn't have. When you are convinced that you don't have what you need, you start wanting things that you shouldn't have. That is the definition of temptation and sin. In your marriage relationship, things are on a rocky path right now. And it's like, oh, you know, he doesn't make me feel the way he used to make me feel. She doesn't treat me the way she used to treat me. Maybe I deserve better than this. Maybe I'm entitled. You know, God would want me to be happy, and I'm not happy right now. So maybe, you know, maybe I don't have what I need. And you start looking at things you shouldn't have because you're in a moment where you've either sought out something forbidden Or you are actually twisting a little kernel of truth to make it justifiable for you to pursue it. It's a donkey head for 80 pieces of silver. It's dove's dung for five pieces of silver. And they justified it because they were in famine and they were compromising themselves. Look at this in verse 26. It gets worse, I promise. I'm so sorry. As the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, Help me, my lord the king! And the king replied, if the Lord does not help you, where can I get help for you? From the threshing floor, from the wine press. And then he asked her, what's the matter? And she answered, this woman said to me, give up your son so we may eat him today and tomorrow we'll eat my son. And so we cooked up my son and ate him. And the next day I said to her, give up your son so we may eat him. But she had hidden him. And I know you're like, Jeremy, this is weird. It's in the Bible. Blame God, don't blame me, all right? Now, here's the deal. She, this woman cries out to the king. He's walking up on the wall. The wall would have surrounded the city. And so she's down in the town, down on the road. And the king is passing by on the, on the wall. And he understands the plight that they're in. And so she cries out, help me, king. Help me, my lord, the king. He's like, what can I do? I can't go to the threshing floor. I can't. There's no wheat. There's no grain. There's nothing for us to get there. I can't go to the wine press. There's nothing there. We're out of everything that we need to provide food. What could I even do for you? I mean, what happened? Why are you even asking for help? And she's like, this lady... This other lady, right, she doesn't confront the fact that she was willing to compromise herself. She blames it on the other lady. This other lady, here's what she did. Adam did that to Eve. Eve did that to the snake in Genesis 1. This other person was guiltier than I'm guilty. So this other lady said, hey, here's what we'll do. i got a plan. You've got a son. I've got a son. We're both hungry. Today, let's kill your son and eat him, and tomorrow we'll kill my son and eat him. So they killed my son. We ate him. The next day, we went looking for her son, and she had hidden him. Can you believe that she had hidden her son, and now I'm, I'm starving again? Can you believe that, King? Right? I mean, this is weird. This is also the exact opposite of what parenthood should be about. right? Parenthood is about providing for your children, nurturing your children. And here she is, here the other woman is, they're actually looking out for themselves before they're looking out for the well-being of their children, so this is a weird story. I get it. If you read this and you go, this is weird. I wish this wasn't in the Bible. Me too. All right. I ditto that. But what we see here is we see these two women who have, again, compromised themselves because they're in famine. And when you are in famine, you lose your way. When you're in famine, things get cloudy. Cloudy. Things get a little murky, and you're trying to figure out, like, how are we going to survive? How are we going to do this? If you've ever been in a moment, it didn't feel like famine because maybe there was still food in your pantry, but your paycheck was a little less, or maybe your paycheck stopped, and you come to that moment when you're sitting at the table, and you've got all the bills, and you've got all the money, and the month is still going, but the money has run out. How are we going to make it? How are we going to do this? You come to that moment where you have to decide, like, where does my help come from? If it's about you, if you feel like you are the only one that can provide your help, you're the only one that can do anything to fix your circumstances, you're going to be confronted with a moment where you could compromise yourself. You could actually, if you're not careful, forfeit your future, your son. Forfeit your future for your present. You you could eat your tomorrow, right? just to try to deal with the circumstances of today. This is a weird story, but in famine, we tend to lose our way. So in this moment, here's what happens. The king hears this story. He rips his robe. Underneath his robe, he has sackcloth and ashes, which means he's mourning the condition of his people, and he's trying to figure out how in the world do we get out of this? How is this going to happen? What are we going to do? And the people see him, and the people see how he's responding to this, and he decides you know what? The prophet of God, Elisha, he's the one to blame. He could have done something to fix this. He probably called this famine onto us as a matter of judgment. This is his fault. The king didn't deal with his own circumstance. He didn't deal with his own sin if there was sin. He didn't deal with the the plight of his people. He starts looking for somebody to blame, which is what we all do when we find ourselves in a season of famine. He says, you know what? This is Elisha's fault. This is Elisha's fault. It's his fault. He either brought this on us or he could have stopped it and he didn't do it. This is Elisha's fault. And here's the deal. If he's not dead, God punish me ever so severely if he's not dead by this time tomorrow. Well, Elisha gets word. He's sitting with some friends. He gets word. And here's what he says. He says, no, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to take off running because I hear the man coming from the king. But here's the truth. This is the verse, first verse in chapter 7. Elisha replied, Hear the word of the Lord. He's not speaking for himself. He's speaking for God. This is what the Lord says. About this time tomorrow, six quarts of choice flour will cost only one piece of silver, and 12 quarts of barley grain will cost only one piece of silver. Now, you're talking about six quarts of flour, one piece of silver, 12 quarts of barley grain, one piece of silver. Remember that the going rate today is 80 pieces of silver for a donkey head and five pieces of silver for a cup of dove dung. He's talking about flipping the entire economy upside down. He's talking about taking the present circumstances and flipping the script completely. This time tomorrow, 24 hours from now, you're going to get as much flour as you want, as much barley as you want. It's going to cost like one piece of silver. And this is not my opinion. This is what God is saying. Here's the truth of verse 1 in my opinion. As I read this, I was reminded by the Lord for my own life. Famine isn't forever. Famine only lasts for a season. If you think back now, most of us have the ability, a little bit of self-awareness, a little bit of context to look back and recognize that there were some days that seemed really, really, really dark. We sat at that table. We didn't know how we were going to make it. We're driving in the car. We didn't know how we were going to make it. Our marriage seemed to be in shambles. Our budget was completely out of whack. Our kids seemed to be as far away from us and as far away from God as possible. But some of us in the room today can testify, can tell the story that it didn't last forever. That there was, just like a dark day, there was a good day that eventually came. We got a different job. Money started coming in. We forgave our spouse. They forgave us. We started communicating again. Things got right. Our kids came back home. Our kids were restored. Our kids started going to church. Maybe even if it wasn't our church, they started loving God. Whatever your circumstances are, some of you can tell the story that famine isn't forever. It's just for a season. And here's what I know. There are others of you in the room that you're still walking through the darkness. And you're still living like, yeah, what you're describing in the first half of that story is still me. There is still no money. My marriage still is in shambles. My kids are still far away. Things are still dark. And so some of you that have walked through those dark days and come out on the other side, you need to start telling your stories. Because your stories actually help grow the faith of those who are walking through the darkness. Scripture tells us that darkness or sadness lasts for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Some of you are just holding on to the morning, but some of you have actually gotten to the morning. You know what it feels like. You know what it looks like. And so some of you, you need to start telling those stories so that there are others in your life that hear you tell that story and they go, wow, it seems so oppressive to me now. It seems so heavy to me now. I don't know how we're going to make it. I'm not sure how it's going to happen. But then I hear the story and it grows my faith. It builds my faith to believe that, man, I am in a dark place. But darkness doesn't last forever. Joy comes in the morning. Look at this in verse 2. The officer on whose arm the king was leaning said to the man of God, Look, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of heaven, could this really happen? What you're describing, six quarts of choice flour, twelve quarts of barley grain. Could all of that really happen? And Elisha said this, You will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat any of it. He's prophesying here, telling something that hasn't yet come to pass. As the man that the king had been with, his servant, his, his armor bearer, his defender, is talking to the man of God. He says, listen, what you're describing, 24 hours we're gonna totally flip the story? 24 hours later, we're gonna have six quarts of flour for one piece of silver. 24 hours from now, we're gonna have 12 quarts of barley grain, one piece of silver. Where's it gonna come from? You gotta plant seed to get grain out of the ground. You gotta be able to take that and then process it. And like, I looked around in the fields, there's nothing. Where are we getting the flower from? I don't don't understand how we're going to, in 24 hours, how could this, even if God opened up the floodgates of heaven, could this really be? His question speaks to the question that some of us have in our heart. And it's this question. Is God really my provider? Is God really my provider? For so many of us, our faith in God is at its maximum, When we get to our limit to actually accomplish it ourselves, we trust God just enough for what we can do with our own hands. Like, God, I'm trusting you to give me the strength to produce what I need. God, I'm giving you, I'm praying to you, I'm asking you to help me. I'm trusting you just enough to work through me so that I can do everything I need. I have a job, I do this, I do that. And God, my faith is maxed out at the level that I can do this if you don't show up. And yet, faith is the evidence of things hoped for. It's those evidences of things unseen. Faith is actually where you start living at the point just beyond what you can accomplish on your own. The servant said to the man of God, he's like, could this even be? Like what you're describing, could this even happen? I, I don't, I'm not sure that this is even possible. Like even if God opened up the floodgates, of heaven, even if God did everything supernaturally that he could do, I can't do it, and so it's impossible. I can't produce enough flour. We can't, as a collective, we can't produce enough grain. There's no way this is accomplished. But what we see is that faith doesn't actually kick in until we get to the limit of what we can do on our own. It's at that point where I go, I can't do this, and we trust God to do it, that we're actually living by faith for the first time. That's the moment where we're actually trusting God to do what only he can do. And did you see what Elisha said to him? He said, you'll see it with your own eyes. You're actually going to see that God is your provider, that God can do what you're questioning him to be able to do, but you will not eat any of it. How sad. A man that's lived through famine doesn't get to enjoy the feasting season that is to come because he doubts that God is his provider. He's not going to get to enjoy the next day Even though he's lived through all these bad days, he's not going to get to enjoy the next day because he is not trusting God. When I view God as my provider, I trust him in the famine and I acknowledge him in the feasting. But when I don't trust him in the famine, often I miss the ability to feast. I miss the ability to live in plenty because I've not trusted God in lack. I've not trusted God when there wasn't enough. When I couldn't do what was necessary to be done. But here's a truth that I learned, and I probably learned it the hard way. Can i just be honest. I'm not telling on my kids anymore. I'm telling on me. Here's a truth that I had to realize the hard way. God owns it all. God owns it all. It's all God's anyway. Because here's what happened... As I was coming into my teenage years, college years, young adult years even, I loved God. I served God. But I thought that I was responsible to produce the six quarts of flour and the 12 quarts of barley to get us out of famine. I'm not talking about not working hard. Okay, So if you hear anything today that's like, well, Jeremy gave me an excuse. I don't have to work hard. That's a lie. I didn't say that. Go back and listen to the podcast. I promise. But I thought I was responsible to be the provider. Now, I provide for my family, but I do it through the provision of God using me as a conduit to bless my family and then ultimately to bless others. The provision of God for my family is just one small part of the story of God's provision that He would bless us to bless others. It's the same story for you. God blesses you to bless others. You are a conduit, and the moment that you stop looking outside of yourself, the moment that you stop looking for ways to bless others, which we talk about in here in just a second, I believe that's where the blessings of God for you stop, that when I quit looking outside of myself, if I'm only trying to store it up for me, I think God caps that blessing, but if I recognize that I'm a conduit of God's blessing, I believe God will find ways to funnel more blessing through you because he knows you're giving it away to other people. And so when I look at these passages here, what I recognize is that God owns it all. If I'm in famine, it can change into feast in 24 hours. I haven't even given you the resolve. You don't even know how that's going to happen. But as I read this story, I go, okay, I trust you, God. I believe you, God. I've heard enough stories from people in this church in both of our services that I know that even if it's weeping tonight, that joy comes in the morning, it's coming. My faith has grown. My faith has been built. I've actually experienced that myself, but I didn't trust him. I I mean, I would have said I trusted him, but I didn't trust him. And so I withheld from God what was rightly his. When we talk about giving here at Canton Church, I don't know what your faith background is. I don't know what you've heard people talk about related to giving and giving in the church or tithing. When we talk about that, here's what we recognize as a church. And you may disagree. Here's what we recognize as a church. It's all God's anyway. God actually owns 100% of it. So when we're talking about giving God a tithe, which means the 10th, We're not saying give God 10% of what is yours. We're saying give God back the 10% he entrusted to you and allows you to keep the 90%. And so for us, we're just recognizing God, we want to continually be a conduit. We're not giving to the church. We're giving through the church back to God. And as a benefit of that, the church is enriched in ways to allow it to bless other people. Because we see God as provider because God owns it all. If I curse the famine, if I doubt God as provider, ultimately I believe that it will still still leave me lacking when the feast comes. Now let's read a large chunk of text to conclude this story. Look at verse 3 in chapter 7. Now there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. And they said to each other, why stay here until we die? If we say we'll go into the city, the famine is there, we will die. But if we stay here, we will die. So let's go over to the camp of our enemies, the Arameans, and let's surrender. If they spare us, we live. If they kill us, then we die. At dusk, they got up and went to the camp of the Arameans. And when they reached the edge of the camp, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army, so that they said to one another, look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and the Egyptian king to attack us. And so they got up and fled in the dusk and abandoned their tents and their horses and their donkeys, and they left the camp as it was and ran for their lives. The men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp, entered one of the tents, and ate and drank. And then they took silver and gold and clothes, and they went off and they hid them. And then they returned, and they entered another tent, and they took some things from it, and they hid them also. And verse 9, they said to each other, what we're doing is not right. This is a day of good news, and we are keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let's go at once and report this to the royal palace. Now, what we're not going to read that you can read on your own over the next few verses is that the men who had leprosy, they go back and they tell the king, hey, listen, we went. They actually don't even get to come into the king because they have leprosy. They go tell the guard, well, you let the king know we went to the camp of the Arameans and when we got there, they were gone. And we went in and we got all their stuff and we were able to eat and drink and we took all their, their, their goods and supplies. It was incredible. And so the king's like, no, you know what they did? The Aramians are trying to trap us. They left their camp. They want us to show up, and then they're going to come back in, and they're going to kill us all. So here's what we'll do. We won't send everybody. Let's just send a few men into the camp. And they did, and when they got there, they found it exactly like these men with leprosy said. And so they send word back, and they go in, and they raid the camp. And when they get into the camp, they find everything that they want, and they come back. And less than one day later, six quarts of flour sells for one piece of silver. And 12 quarts of barley grain sells for one piece of silver because God provided to them through the possessions of their enemies. It's a weird story. I get it. But what I love about these last few verses that kind of brings for me a resolution to all that we've been reading is that in the end, God chose to use four men with leprosy to bring the famine to conclusion And provide a feast for the people. Now, if you don't know anything about leprosy, that may not seem like a big deal to you. But here's the deal about people with leprosy. They were outcasts. They had to actually remove themselves from the city. Remove themselves from community. They couldn't be with their families. They had to leave their homes. They had to go outside the city and hang out only with other people who had leprosy. And so they would hang out and if anybody that was clean that didn't have leprosy, leprosy just being some type of skin disease or skin open sore that medicine in that day and time couldn't heal, there was nothing that could be done to dry it up or to cause it to be cured except for a time, a passage of time. So they had to stay outside the city until it was healed, until it was cured and then go present themselves to the priest and say I'm cured, I'm healed and he would make them wait a little more time and then once they had passed that time they could come back and be restored but while they were outside the city If anybody who was clean that didn't have leprosy approached them, they had to yell, unclean, 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 I'm sorry, I'm unclean, go away from me. And those were the people that God chose to use to restore feast back to a people in famine. Outcasts. People that you wouldn't have chosen, I wouldn't have chosen, and yet God chose them that's a kind of a pattern in the stories of scripture that God continually chooses people that other people overlook and so maybe you're sitting here today and you're like Jeremy I I love what you're saying and I want to be used by God but I'm not sure I'm the kind of person God can use and I would say to you that means you're exactly the kind of person that God could use You're exactly the kind of person that God would want to do something in and that God would want to do something through for the purpose of blessing other people. If you're an outcast, it means you're not relying on your own ability. You're not relying on your own charisma. You're not relying on your own gifts or talents. You're trusting God to do what only God can do in and through you, which sets God up to get all the glory for everything that will be accomplished. It was outcasts. It was men who were desperate. Did you hear it? I I, I chuckled when I read it every single time. They said, here's the deal. We're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. We're starving. So if we stay here, we die. But if we go in the city, because we have leprosy, we die. And if we go somewhere else, we die. And so let's go present ourselves to our enemies. Maybe they'll let us live. But at worst, they kill us and we die, right? Right? And so they're trying to decide, like, what's worse? Being killed because we have leprosy, being killed because we go into the city, staying here and nothing changing, or actually being proactive and starting to move before we know how God's going to show up and trusting by faith that God will do something amazing. Let's go present ourselves to our enemies. Let's move. You can't park, you can't steer a parked car. You want God to move, you want God to bless. You want God to do something in you? Don't stand still. Unless you've heard God explicitly say to you, stay where you're at, start moving. Step into the water and watch them roll back. Touch the water with the staff. Old Testament stories, watch the waters roll back. Step out of the boat, ask God, can I come out of the boat? Step out, step out on the boat and start walking on the water. Like move and trust God to do something great. And we see that because they were desperate. It's two different reactions to desperation. Early in the story, we see people that were buying donkey heads, cups of doves dung. We see moms that are eating their kids because they're desperate. But here we see four outcasts who were desperate and decided to do something about it. And when they moved, God showed up on their behalf. And it actually solved the circumstance for everyone else in the camp. For everyone else in the city. But then I love that last verse that we read. Verse 9. This is where we close today. They said this is not right. This is a day of good news. And we're keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight punishment will overtake us. Let us go at once and report this. Here's a question for all of us. Does your desperation include an awareness of the needs of others? In moments where you're desperate, are you only desperate for yourself, or do you recognize that there may be others who are desperate like you, and are you willing to at least consider their desperation as you think about yours? They said, we're getting to eat. We were starving. We are starving, but now we're not starving anymore. But there comes this moment of realization where they say, you know what though, but what we're doing is not right we got to go tell some people about this. Do you know anybody in your life who's compromising themselves? Because what they have is not what they necessarily need or think that they need, and so they're maybe looking outside of the values that they've established to pursue some things that they shouldn't have. You know anybody like that? I mean, again, you kind of keep the metaphor going. You know anybody that's chasing after donkey heads and cups of dove dung? when they were ordained by God to feast? Maybe that's you today. Maybe you're compromising who you are and you're not really sure how you got here. But here's the amazing reality of axes and arrows. You don't have to stay here. You don't have to keep compromising yourself. Today you can put a stake in the ground and say, I'm done. I'm done with donkey heads and doves dung. I'm, I'm done forfeiting my future to fix the circumstances of my present. I'm gonna trust God in famine, so that I get to acknowledge God and feast. But maybe that's not you. Maybe you just know somebody. Maybe you're just asking for a friend. Maybe you know somebody, and you recognize that they're in a, they're in a tough spot. They're in a dark place. Let me ask you a really tough question. I've been asking myself this all week. If those people knew that I showed up in moments like this and I sang about and worshiped and prayed to a God who was hope for the hopeless and I hadn't told them, what would it cause them to think about me? What would it cause them to think about me if I had the answer? If I allowed them to continually compromise themselves and I never confronted them to say, oh, you're better than this. I used to be that same way. I used to make those same decisions. But you know what? God delivered me. God's good enough. He is enough. Christ is enough for me. And he's enough for you. If they knew that you knew that, and you just hadn't shared it, what would it cause them to think about you? Here's what I want you to do as we close today. I want you to stand right where you're at. As we close today in just a moment of personal reflection, just bow your head maybe for a second. Maybe close your eyes just in a personal moment of prayer. And if you would say to me today with nobody looking around, you would say, you know what, Jeremy, as you, as you talk, I, I hear what you're saying. And I'm one of those people that's compromised. I'm forfeiting really who I am. And I want to stop it. Today I recognize that maybe I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I need to respond and ask for God for forgiveness and to be the Lord of my life. Maybe I've prayed a prayer before, but I recognize, like, I have compromised myself, and today I want it to stop. I want to trust God as my provider. Would you just lift your hand right where you're at? Thank you so much. Anybody else? Thank you so much. Now, if you would say to me, different group of people, perhaps, maybe some of the same. You know what? I know people exactly like you're describing, and I want to help, just like these four men with leprosy. I want to go and report all that I've seen and heard. It's not good that I would keep this for myself, but I want to declare this to others. Would you lift that up? Thank you so much. Let's pray. God, we love you. I thank you for every hand that was lifted today, and God, right now in this moment, I pray for every person that acknowledged their need for you. They've compromised themselves in maybe a variety of ways. But God, today, they recognize their need for you. They're putting a stake in the ground. Today, they don't look back. They're moving forward. They're going to quit taking the things that are forbidden. They're going to quit searching for the things that are just a little bit of a manipulation of truth. And they tried to justify it and make it right. But today, they stop that. They seek the truth only. They live in the truth. They walk in the truth. They trust you to be their provider. So God, right now, I pray for them. I pray for strength for them. I pray for courage for them. God, I thank you for their willingness to make that statement today. And so, God, we join with them now. Let your strength be enough for them. God, I pray for all of us who have lifted our hands to say, we know some folks. We we know some people. Maybe they're in that place of compromise. Maybe they're in a place of famine. And, God, we want to help them find their way out. Let us share the good news of the gospel. Help us, Lord, to live that out. Let us tell the story of living in the darkness but finding the light so that they can grow their faith as well. God, let us be that kind of place that lifts you up and declares the hope of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. (laughs) Thank you again for listening. If you would like more information about today's message or about our church, we invite you to visit us at cantonchurch.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash cantonchurchga.